Amen. Would you remain standing and let's give attention to our passage today, which is found in Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 32. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. This is the word of God to you today. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God has made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the, the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise, amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way of having sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that never should be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand break their promises to each other. They're heartless and they have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. And worse yet, they encourage others to do the same. God, would you help us today with a very difficult passage to understand the truth of your heart for each and every one of us. May you help us to hear your word 
in the way that it was intended to be heard with grace and with truth. We worship you today in spirit and in truth. You are the God of all truth, the God of all hope, and the God that loves us relentlessly. So over the next several minutes, would you open our hearts and our minds to hear from you? In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's go. (laughs) You want the bad news first or you want the good news? Bingo. If a mechanic asks you that question, if the dentist asks you that question, if your spouse or one of your kids asks you that question, do you want the bad news first or do you want the good news? The answer is always, give me the bad news. Because once I hear the bad news, I'm going to be able to gauge how good the good news really is, okay? And so Paul gives us here as he starts out in the introduction in chapter one of his letter, the bad news. And it's after his introduction that we've covered the last two weeks in case you've missed. Verse one, Paul gives us an introduction of his letter to the church at Rome by introducing himself. And he tells us two important things in verse one. He tells us that he's a doulos, he's a slave or servant to Jesus Christ alone. And we talked about that would have been unheard of for a Roman citizen to say that they were in subjugation to anyone else other than Caesar. And yet Paul says, no, I know who my God is. I know who my Lord is and it's Jesus alone. That's the one that I serve. And then he tells us that God set him apart to be an apostle. And do you remember what the word apostle means? The word apostle means the one who is sent out. And in a way, in that apostolic calling, all of us have been sent to go and to make disciples. And Paul was called and set apart specifically to go and do just that, specifically for those who didn't grow up worshiping the one true God as Jews. He was the apostle, the sent out one to the, the Gentile world. And his influence was, was incredible. It's, it's not hyperbole to say One of the reasons why we're uh, sitting here today uh, worshiping together is because of the Apostle Paul, that he wanted to see the circle of God grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And we've talked about the fact that God's always about drawing bigger circles and helping us to move to people in the spaces that haven't understood the good news of Jesus. But Paul also introduces us in chapter one, verses two through 17, to the gospel, to the good news. And we talked about that's the definition of the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus. And he gives us five themes to introduce the gospel to us. I'm not gonna go through each one, but if you wanna take a screenshot or you're taking notes, here's the five themes, the five keys that Paul wants us to understand right off the bat about the good news. Last week, uh, in between services, there was a young man uh, that met me up front here with his dad and asked to visit together. So we went to my office and we shared a little bit and talked about the gospel. And he asked, would you lead me in a prayer? Would, would you help me to understand and receive Christ today? So he received Christ in my office last week in between services and understanding the gospel, which is great. This is what God is about doing here. But Paul stops here, okay? 
once he gets to verse 17, an introduction of himself and an introduction of the gospel, which he's going to come back to all throughout uh, the letter, he wants, to understand, uh, wants us to understand the depths of this good news. Uh, the bottom line today and really the next couple of weeks is that you can't know how good the good news is. You know, the gospel means good news. You can't know how good the good news is unless you know how bad the bad news is. You can't know how wonderful the gospel really is until you know the depths of brokenness, of rebellion, of uh, going against the ways of God, of darkness. As Tim Keller says, the gospel is a a pearl, a, a, a light in a vast world of darkness and brokenness. And until you explore and explain the depths of our brokenness, individually and corporately, you can't understand how good the gospel is. You can't know how good the good news is until you know how bad the bad news is. And here's the deal, guys, spoiler alert, it's bad. The bad news is worse than you thought. But the good news is greater than you could ever imagine. And Paul wants us to understand how bad the bad news really is. He wants his specific audience, the Roman church, to understand the depths of our brokenness and rebellion. He wants us to understand that so that he can, we can understand and his audience can understand how great the good news really is. And it's not as if the bad news, by the way, is separate from the good news. You can't have good news without bad news. And so if you're taking notes, maybe just write a little note here from chapter 1, verse 18, where we started today in our passage, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is going to explain and explore the depths of our brokenness. He's going to explain and explore the bad news, which is a part of the good news. It's not separate from the gospel. And in this way, He's going to help get to the root of our infection. If you've ever had a scrape or you've had a a cut and you've asked someone, you know, a parent or a coach or teacher to help you to to clean it up and to to properly address it, if they just slapped a Band-Aid on it or a bandage over a bad wound, it could become infected. What do you have to do first? It doesn't feel good. What do you have to do? Yeah, you got to sanitize it. You got to clean it out. Sounds like that's happened to you, okay? You got to clean it out, right? And it hurts, doesn't it? It stings, but it's for your good. And I want you to hear this with the passage this week and the next couple of weeks. It might sting. It might even hurt, but it's not meant to harm. It's meant for your good. Just like when you put peroxide or you put alcohol or even water or soap on a wound to wash it out, to make sure it doesn't get more infected and to make sure that it can heal properly. That's what Paul wants to do with the goodness of the gospel, but he's got to get to the root of the infection and he's got to address it and it might sting and it might even hurt, but the intention is not to hurt. Uh, or, or to harm. The intention is to, to make sure that it heals properly and it addresses the, the wound and the infection. Are you with me? God doesn't default, by the way, to just one position. Uh, he can both um, speak the truth and it might sting, but also at the same time hold on to the idea that he's, 
He's uh, redeeming you and, and healing you and, and helping you to understand the way forward. Oftentimes as, as people, we're people of polarity, meaning we default to one position or the other. We're either trying to harm someone or we're trying to do good. But, but God is able to, to speak the truth, but to do it in love. And he enables us to do the same. So in these three sections, again, if you're taking notes, here's how Paul goes about it. He talks about the brokenness of the Gentiles, those who did not grow up knowing the one true God and who were not uh, a part of the Jewish faith and understanding. So he talks specifically in this context to the Roman culture and what was happening there. And he does that in verses 18 through 32, the, the ending of chapter one. But then next week, uh, we're gonna talk about the brokenness of those who grew up religious, who grew up in Judaism. And he talks specifically about the brokenness of the Jews in chapter two, all the way through uh, chapter three, verse eight. And then in verses nine through 20 in chapter three, Paul says, hey, we're all in the same boat. So whether you grew up as a Gentile or a Jew or somewhere in between, here's how all of us fall short of the glory of God. Here's how all of humanity, everyone is broken and all means all and that's, that's all all means. And so Paul wants to get at the brokenness of the outsider, if you will, the insider religiously and everybody in between to talk about all of humanity and the ways that we fall short in our brokenness. Today we're talking about the first one, verses 18 through 32 in chapter 1 the Gentiles, and specifically the Roman culture and the brokenness that was brought into the church from Roman believers there in the city. Let's start with verses 18 through 20. If you have your scriptures, I want to encourage you to open there with me. And in verse 18, it starts with a preposition, uh, the word but, and it's connecting verses 16 and 17, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1:16. For it's the power of God of salvation for everyone who believes. And then he goes on to talk about it's from faith by faith, meaning that from start to finish, this was an exercise of trust and faith in God. And that God makes people right by faith. This has always been the case from Abraham all the way until now. And this is what Paul is connecting, this idea that God makes us right in his sight by faith, not by works. And he says, I'm not ashamed of that story. I'm not ashamed of the truth of the gospel because it changes lives. And then he connects it to uh, the depths of our brokenness. He says, but look at verse 18, but God shows his anger. Some of your translations use the word wrath from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So what makes God angry? Well, the word anger here, and when we hear it culturally, is a loaded word, isn't it? Now, just to say, the Bible doesn't describe anger as a sin. The Bible says that we should sin not in our anger. And what Paul is describing here is a righteous anger. It's an indignation against brokenness and rebellion of humanity. So it's God's righteous response to sin, if you're taking notes. That's what Paul means here when he uses the word anger. And it's not spontaneous like most of our anger is. And it's not self-indulgent or self-focused, which most of our anger is. The, the word anger here in the Greek is in the present tense, by the way. It's not in the future tense. So it doesn't mean in the end times God's judgment on those who reject him. It's a present tense anger, meaning that God, uh, from the, the beginning of rebellion in Genesis 3 up until now, is expressing his indignation 
and his righteous indifference to the rebellion of his humanity and people. This is what Douglas Moo said. He said, the anger or wrath of God is not an emotional rage, but it's a steadfast opposition to all that is evil in our lives. As long as God is God, he cannot behold with indifference that his creation is destroyed and his holiness is trodden underfoot. So what makes God angry? Verse 18, creation destroying itself. Creation rebelling against the God that created them and instead living the way that they want to live, living without regard for God and his created world and his created order. This is like an artist. Sometimes you'll see uh, folks that are angry, they're protesting something and they'll, they'll destroy a, a work of art. They'll throw paint on it or tomato sauce or something like that to, to get attention. And can you imagine what the artist might feel when they see their masterpiece destroyed in that way. An indifference, an anger to something being distorted and destroyed. And this is God because God said to us that we are his masterpiece, Ephesians 2.10. And when he sees his masterpiece being destroyed and moreover destroying itself, it ignites in him an indifference, not an emotional rage, but a steadfast opposition to all that is evil within us and around us. When we live without regard to a creator, when it's obvious to all, we're suppressing the truth. And Paul gets ahead of this because he's thinking, you know, as the Roman church is reading this, and specifically for Gentiles who grew up outside of Judaism and understanding about the one true God, He's anticipating their objection to God's wrath or his indifference, um, you know, his in, um, broke, to brokenness and to rebellion and the idea that God stands in opposition to evil. And so Paul sort of gets ahead of this uh, with, hey, how can we be held accountable? How can, you know, people be on the hook for something that they didn't know? And look at verses 19 through 20. Uh, Paul introduces this idea of general revelation. Maybe you've heard that before, that the idea that there are, there's special revelation in the scriptures, like how God showed up in moments or theophanies before his birth, you know, ways that a pre-incarnate Christ like Moses in the burning bush and the parting of the Red Sea and all kinds of miraculous moments in time where God revealed himself in a special way, where God spoke through prophets and priests and the patriarchs. Uh, God gave us the scriptures. But before any of that, uh, Paul says here in verses 19 through 20 that everyone is accountable not to know everything about about God, but to know something of God, how? As they look at creation itself, look at the passage. He says, as they look to the sky, as they look to the water, as they look at creation, they can see the order, the sun sets, the sun rises, the stars are in their place. Things move with an order, which, which uh, evokes an understanding that there is an ordered one, someone that, that put all of this into place, that it wasn't random that there was a creator that, that created the world. And if there was a creator that created the world, that he had a design and an understanding for you, that God meant something when he meant you. And this is why we reject the idea that all of this is random or circumstance or circumstantial of so random atoms colliding and we're just here on accident. Paul says it's foolishness to look at it that way. Uh, speaking of logic, it doesn't logically make sense. 
What makes the most sense? And by the way, there's a lot of scientists now that are, that are accepting this idea of a created order. They're not naming the creator, but they're going, it may have been aliens that created us or, or someone else that created, I'm not kidding. Someone else or something else that created us because it's mathematically impossible to explain this without someone or something creating us. And we go, yes. And Paul says, yes. Even people who don't know God or understand everything about God can look at creation and understand that there was someone or something that designed this, that put things into order, that made us the way that we are. And to reject that, Paul uses the word here of foolishness. And you need to understand that he's not calling people fools in of themselves. He's saying rejecting God and his general revelation to people is foolishness. It's like suppressing the basic and obvious truths of the creator and his created order. So Paul says people are without excuse for not knowing that there's a creator and a thoughtful designer to his world. And when we're confused, listen to this. When we together are confused about the basic building blocks of humanity, of anatomy, of society, it's because we suppressed a general truth and revelation that God gave to us to know him and the order of his creation. Again, God is, when you hear this, God is not a personer like us in the sense that he holds to one position or the other. He can both name the truth and be angry in in opposition to evil, but also be holding the truth of redemption and grace through Christ, and he is. And Paul is building all of this so that people just like us who are listening to this would understand the depths of our brokenness so we would understand the depths of God's goodness. And so Paul anticipates this and says, look, we're all on the hook and responsible because God has made himself known through creation itself to know enough about the designer and the order of this world. Let's keep going. Verses 21 through 23. Paul says, uh, moreover, people were made to worship. So look at this here. He says, you know, they've exchanged the one that they were made to worship, the the one true God who deserves our praise forever. And instead, what's happened? Creation has begun to worship created things, right? The the, the things that, that God made have actually become things that we've elevated. There's a word for this biblically. It's idolatry. We've begun to elevate someone or something above the one true God. And you've heard me say this before, that no one or nothing else can handle the the weight of your worship. Worship is weighty. It's ascribing value to someone or something. And there's no one and nothing else that can handle the weight of your worship, individually or us collectively. So if you want to crush your kids, worship them. And we got a lot of that going on in our culture. You wanna crush your spouse? Make them everything. Jerry Maguire them. You complete me. Nope. And what happens is one broken person finds another broken person and thinks, if I find another broken person and, and I'm broken, we'll be broken together and it'll just be better that way. And God is on his tiptoes to each and every one of us through creation, through special revelation, his scripture, through the power of the Holy Spirit, drawing each and every one of us to say, I'm the one that completes you. I'm the one that completes you. I'm the one that can handle the weight of your worship. 
and no one and nothing else can. And you know, the one that we worship the most culturally is oftentimes not our kids, our spouse, or our friends, or our jobs, even though we do worship those things. It's the one looking at the mirror every morning at us. We worship ourselves. We indulge ourselves in every kind of pleasure. We think that if we don't indulge ourselves that God won't take care of us and we'll never experience satisfaction. So Paul, I wanna be clear, Paul is writing here in the passage to the church. Okay, we need to understand this. Paul is writing to people who have said, I'm a follower of Jesus and I wanna begin to align my life to the ways that God wants me to live. This is who Paul is writing to. So what's happened that he has to use this type of language and starkness to the church? Well, specifically to the Gentiles, remember this week is about people who grew up outside of Judaism, who didn't know the one true God and have now discovered Jesus, right? And are trying to begin to follow him. But here's what's happened in context in AD 49, right? This is just extra biblical, right? Outside of the scriptures, we know this historically, that the emperor Claudius, Caesar, kicked out all of the Jews from Rome. Why? Because he was jealous of their worship of the one true God. And because the Romans were a polytheistic society, they didn't want monotheist in their culture. People that were only worshiping the one true God. So Claudius kicks them out. So guess who takes leadership in the church? This is important contextually. The Gentiles, those who were non-Jews, Roman citizens who had made a profession to follow Jesus but were new and trying to learn what that meant, and they become the leaders in the church. And guess what they bring with them, what all of us bring into our relationships and even the church? All of our luggage. Here comes all of my baggage with me, right? As a person, as a leader, And so what happened is that the Gentile leaders for five plus years when Claudius kicked out the Jews, which by the way, uh, Priscilla and Aquila were included in that group. That's how they met Paul. This is how Paul knows all of this because he's become friends with them and they begun to tell him all the things that were going on in the church at Rome. And God put in Paul's heart, I wanna go to Rome to encourage them to be encouraged and to go further, to draw a bigger circle. But Priscilla and Aquila say, here's exactly what happened to us and here's what's happening in the church. And that becomes the context that Paul writes this letter. And by the way, he writes the letter to the Romans from Corinth, a church that had their own problems. When I hear people say, we just need to go back to the early church and just, we just need to go back and do, you know, what early, have you read the New Testament? Like people were messed up just like us. And the church was messed up. I tell people all the time, if you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll break it because of your brokenness, right? Right? There, it doesn't exist, guys. It doesn't exist because perfect people don't exist on this side of eternity. And this is what Paul is talking about. But the Gentiles specific, specifically had brought in all of their baggage right? And they had assimilated their pagan culture and the ideas of pagan worship and Roman culture into the church, specifically sexuality and their view of power and their view of greed and their view of relationships. They had pulled all of this into the church. And so this is so important for us to understand because the call of the church, the call of Christians, people who are followers of Jesus is not to abandon culture, And it's not to lord ourselves over culture. 
It's not to be under culture. Think it's the big bad world and we just, we just can't engage. And so we just have to pull back specifically. No, Jesus calls us to be salt and light. Salt is a preservative to preserve the culture, right? And to be light, to bring light into dark places. This is dark and it's dark for the next two chapters. And the church is called to enter into that. So it's not under culture, it's not over culture, it's transforming culture. The church is meant to transform culture, but this is what was happening. The church was being transformed by the culture. The word is syncretism. It's, it's, it's the culture entering into the church, and so instead of the church being salt and light, the church is being assimilated into the culture and it's going along and acting just like people who don't follow Jesus. And Paul says, no, we can't have this. We can't have this in any of the ways. And by the way, what's happening in our culture today is the same. If you wanted to put a banner over all this, it's identity. And it's identity first and foremost for Christians, for knowing who and whose we are and how we begin to enter into every relationship. And we enter into relationships, by the way, not needing something from anyone, because I've already got it from God. So I don't have to be a consumer of you, right? I can be someone who is, is entering in to encourage you and to bless you and to point you to truth because I'm not trying to consume you in some kind of physical or relational or monetary way. We live in a culture that says, you are nothing but a consumer. And God says, no, you're my child. And because you're my child, you have everything you need. But don't you see here, the, the Roman Christians in the church have brought all of their baggage with them specifically their identity issues. And now the church is struggling with this and they've assimilated this pagan worldview and their understanding of money and power and politics and sexuality. Does this sound familiar at all? Into culture and, and they brought it with them into the church. And by the way, the only way out is a shared unity, which is the whole point of Romans, of bringing Gentiles and Jews together in the church to celebrate the goodness of the gospel. The only way out of this for the Roman church and for us is a shared unity in our understanding of the good news and our repentance of our brokenness, both individually and collectively. Romans 1 verse 5, to go back to that, Paul gives us the punch and he says the whole point of all this and sharing the gospel and the good news is so that people will, watch this, believe, number one, there's, a, there's an order to this, it's very important, Romans 1 verse 5, that they would believe the good story about themselves and the gospel of Jesus, what God has done for them and their identity in Jesus, that they would obey or they would, another word is behave out of that belief because you are always, fuck I'm dancing, you, you feel like you are, you are always behaving out of your belief. So you look at someone's behavior and over, everybody has bad moments, but over time, the pattern of your behavior is showing the depths of your belief. Let me put it another way. Your ethic, your behavior, goes right back to your doctrine. What you believe. And so Paul says the whole goal of the gospel is that people would believe the true story of God, that they would behave or obey out of that, not that you begin to obey or do works so that you are accepted by God. You only begin to do works and obey out of your belief of the goodness of God. And then what's the third thing? Romans 1 verse 5, that they would glorify God's name. 
that they would point other people to the true story and the one true God. But that doesn't happen here. It's not happening. And so let's look at verses 24 through 32. God essentially says to people over time, as they continue to reject him, they continue to reject his way, his good story about themselves in the world, he basically says, have it your way. I mean, this is a, uh, you know, like a Burger King moment for God. Have, have it your way. I'm going to choose to allow you to experience and face the consequences of your free choices to obey or to disobey, to follow created order or to rebel against it. Now, C.S. Lewis said it this way. There are two types of people in this world. The first type says, thy will be done to God. The Lord's Prayer, what Jesus taught us to pray, thy will be done. The other type is God saying to people, thy will be done. So you're either saying to God, thy will be done in my life and every part of my life, or God is saying to you over time, thy will be done. Thy will be done. Listen to verses 24 through 25. God abandoned them. In other words, he turned them over to whatever shameful things their hearts desired. What they, this is heart, not head, what they were believing and as a result, they did vow and degrading things with each other's bodies. So it, out of belief comes behavior. That's what Paul's trying to say. In verse 25, they traded the truth about God for a lie. And so they, here's our thing. They worship, because we're all made to worship, the served and served the things God created instead of the creator himself. This is at the root of all of our behaviors that miss the mark of God. It's what we're believing about God and believing about ourselves and believing about other people. And then Paul calls out sexual sin specifically in verses 26 and 27. Why does he do this? Because it was so pervasive in the Roman culture. It was something that had been brought in by the Romans into the church. And the church doesn't look any different than the culture. And that's what Paul is talking about. Now, I'm just to be honest. This is, of course, a difficult passage. There's some difficult words in here. And I, and I understand, even in the reading this morning, I could feel it. And it might sting. It might even hurt to hear it. But it's never meant to harm you. It's always meant for your good. God is always about bringing us back to our senses and back to himself and to his goodness and his joy and all the fullness of life that he has. Jesus said it this way in John 3, 17, I didn't come to condemn the world, I came to save the world. It's the goodness of God that turns us and makes us look to him and his good story about us. But this is a church that has turned their back over and over and over again to the things of God, particularly in the area of sexuality. And churches miss this passage in two basic ways. There's a lot of ways we miss God and miss passages, but I'm just gonna name it out loud. There are churches that read a passage like this and they completely punt it. Let's just skip over this and get to the good news. Let's just get to the good part. And, and, and here's my persuasion, and this is Paul's persuasion. You can't know how good it is until you know how bad it is. You can't skip over this. You cannot punt it and act like it's not here or try to explain it away culturally. It's right here. 
but churches miss it on the other side too, where they make it all about homosexuality. Well, see, Paul says this is worse than everything else. That's not what he says. It's not worse than anything else in his list that he's giving here. The reason why he gives this as an example is because sexuality was a gift from God. And it was meant to be expressed in an exclusive relationship between a man and a woman in a covenant relationship called marriage. Marriage was God's idea. God thought of it. He wanted it to happen. And so sexuality becomes a battleground for the enemy because it's God's design. And it's his goodness for people. And of course the enemy wants to get in and distort it in all kinds of different ways, whether it's infidelity outside of that, lusting after other people, uh, homosexuality that is clearly mentioned here. It's all missing the mark of what God intended sexuality for. And this is why Paul brings it up. It's because sex was created by God to be expressed and enjoyed in the context and the safety of a covenant marriage. Why? Because marriage is the closest relationship on earth to the type of relationship that God desires with every single person. And it's trust and it's faithfulness and it's fidelity. It's meant to be a picture of the type of relationship that God wants with humanity. And I want you to know this. Please listen. If you struggle with same-sex attraction, if you have children or grandchildren that struggle with same-sex attraction, I want you to understand that I know that is real. I know that. Just as real as those of us who are married who struggle with attraction to people who aren't our spouse. Just as real as those of us who struggle with lust and and greed and and power and all kinds of difficult things. But I want you to, to understand as well, and I want to be clear on this, that God teaches that homosexuality is not God's best. It's not God's design of his created order. If you struggle with that, just like you struggle with any sin, just like all the sins that I struggle with, you're welcome to be here. People ask me, are you a welcoming church? I hope we're a welcoming church, but I'm not gonna welcome things that aren't of God. And I'm not gonna stand here and not tell you the truth because I love you too much. And God loves you too much to not tell you the truth. And not just the truth about your sexuality, but the truth about your greed, the truth about your infidelity, the truth about the secret things in your heart that God wants to get a hold of. Not because God wants to get you, but because God wants to set you free. And he wants you to experience all the life that he has. And what happens for all of us, whether it's with our power, our money, our sex, whatever it might be, is we think that if I trust God with these things that I long for in my heart, that I was made for, then God won't come through for me. And God won't be enough. And many of us believe that if we don't control our own happiness, that God's not going to come through in that way. And so we, we desperately want order in our lives. People may act like they don't want order until something gets stolen from them. People may act like they don't want justice until an injustice is done to them. And then something from within cries out for justice. Where does that come from? It comes from a creator that made you that way, that is just and orderly. And so we want order, but we live in disordered ways. We want freedom, but we live a life that entangles us and enslaves us to our own desires. Let let me say it very bluntly. 
We want the kingdom. We want the kingdom of God and all the wonderful things of the kingdom of God. But we don't want the king. We don't want King Jesus. We just want all the benefits. But we want to have it our way and say, I'll take a little bit of that, Jesus, but you can have that. I'll take a little bit of this, Jesus, but you can keep your views on sexuality over here. You can keep your views on politics over here. You can keep your views on this over here. You know, when when we've preached on different things, people will say, why are you getting political? I'm not getting political. I'm teaching the scriptures. And because we don't teach the scriptures as a church, then other people in politics take it and negotiate it in other places. And they take control of the issue instead of us saying, this is what God teaches in all kinds of different ways. And it comes down to verse 28 that we think we can do it better than God. That's what Paul says here in verse 28. We, we think that we can do it better than God. And so God gives us over and says, you, you, you do it and have it your way. And let me, let me just read for you what happens when we have it our way, okay? And we'll close here, verses 28 through 32. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, He abandoned them. He gave them over to their foolish thinking and let them do the things that never should have been done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, gossip. They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. They invent new ways of sinning. And I read this to our kids, right? I'm gonna go home tonight and read it again. They disobey their parents, right? Which is hilarious, right, to me that after that list, he adds that. But by the way, why does he add it there? Because of the family and the power of the family. Now I know that many of us, all of us came from broken families to one degree or the other. Some of you came from very broken, painful families. But in God's created desire and order, he created the family to be the first place where we learn order. And we learn authority, proper authority. So what Paul is addressing here is kids, even from a young age, disobeying authority and order and saying, I'm going to have it my way. Let me finish here. They refuse to understand. They break their promises. They're heartless. They have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. In other words, they know the truth and they keep doing it. And worse yet, final sentence, they encourage and lead other people to do the same thing. They say, follow me in my brokenness. Let me give you one word for this passage, okay? There's a lot of words here. Chaos. This is chaos. This is rejecting any kind of order. And do not be mistaken, that is the end game of the enemy. The enemy and all of his demons in this world are after you. Do not be mistaken, whether you realize it or not, you are being hunted by an intelligent being who understands you and who is what the Bible says is setting, actively setting snares and traps to entangle you in your own brokenness. And you confuse what you think is going to lead you to freedom and it ends up entangling you. And the end game of the enemy in all of creation, all of society, it started in Genesis 3, is to distort God's created order and to bring utter chaos and ruin to God's good world. So look at the description there. Go and read it again. 
This is the outflow of people rejecting God. It's precisely what the enemy wants. And in that way, people become heartless. Why? Because in Genesis 3, what was Adam and Eve's response to their sin? They begin to cover themselves. They're aware of their brokenness. They're carrying a shame narrative, which by the way, we'll talk more about this in the next couple of weeks, is the narrative of the story of the world is shame. And when you feel shame, which all of us do, your initial instinct when you feel shame in your life is to cover. And when you keep covering and you keep covering and you keep covering instead of confessing to God and one another as God designed it, you keep covering and you keep covering, your heart gets so calloused towards God, and then it becomes callous towards other people, that you can watch news stories, you can hear stories of all kinds of brokenness, and it does nothing to you. This is what Paul is describing as the end game, that you feel nothing. You're heartless, you have no mercy towards people. And then, verse 32, we willfully lead our children in the same way. We willfully lead weaker people than us, people who don't know Jesus into this. This is written to the church. We allow people to walk towards their own destruction because we we don't want to be canceled. We don't want to be accused of being intolerant. We we don't want to be written off, all the things. And so we refuse to engage in any kind of loving conversation because we're so afraid of being cut off and the world does a pretty good job of that. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't cancel you? He came after you. He kept telling you the truth, hard truths, but always done with love and with grace and with mercy and for your good. Let me end here with the first verse of our passage next week. This is the passage that Tim Keller calls the sucker punch of Romans, okay? And it's a good one for us to end on. Romans chapter two, verse one. You might think you can condemn such people. And some of you may have heard this message today, just like some of the, the Jewish Christians in Rome. And, and, and as Paul is, is correcting the Gentile Christians, they might have been going, get them, Paul. Get, you tell them, Paul. You point out all these things that are wrong with them. We've been trying to tell them, but they won't listen to us. You, you, you tell them. And Paul says, you might think you can condemn such people, but you're just as bad. And you have no excuse. You grew up learning about God, Paul says. And when you say they're wicked and should be punished, you're only condemning yourself for you who judge others do the very same things. Ouch. Ouch. What is Paul saying? Paul's calling anyone out who reads his words, who hears this sermon, and somehow thinks they aren't as bad. Or begins to, as we often do, categorize their sins. And then what do we do by categorizing sins? Then we begin to compare. I'm going to categorize, then I'm going to compare. And I always come out the winner. It's amazing when I compare myself to other people. I don't, is it just me or is it you too? When I compare myself to other people, particularly in the area of brokenness, somehow I'm always in the majority. And even with God, I think I'm gonna squeeze in 51% here. I'm, I'm a little more good than I am bad. 
And Paul and God, more importantly, will not allow us to compartmentalize or individualize this away. We must, everyone listen to this, we must acknowledge these truths and this brokenness and the darkness of our own rebellion together. This was meant to be read and it was read in community together to understand this. Why? Because you can't know how good the good news is until you know how bad the bad news is. The bad news is worse than they told you. The bad news is worse than what you thought. But guys, the good news is greater than you could ever imagine. To Christ be the glory today. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank, thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for not canceling us in our rebellion, but instead coming after us and choosing us to be your own. And so we pray this morning together, corporately, Jesus, have mercy. Have mercy on us, sinners in need of your grace. Have mercy on us, Jesus, your children in need of recognizing and redeeming the identity that you've given to us and living that out in front of one another in a culture, in a world that desperately needs to know your love and your grace. If there's anything that I've said today that's not from you, God, would it be forgotten quickly? But anything from you, God, may it remain in our hearts and bear much fruit. Thank you, Jesus, for being our our living hope that in the darkness of our rebellion, a great light has come. And in that today, we rejoice and celebrate. In Christ's name, amen.